This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hi, my name is Mike Lewis. This is going to be our last episode before our hiatus. If you haven't been listening to the past few episodes, we're going to be pausing the show. And it's not the end of the world or anything near that. It's really just a time for me to get to step back and actually focus a little bit more on the jump I'm making currently at Stanford University, where I'm able to pursue a master's in business administration while also getting to guest lecture a bit here and there on the topic of strategic pivots, jumps, and all that good stuff. So as those developments bubble up, I'm going to pay them a little bit more attention. Um, but my plan is to absolutely head back to the podcast once I uh, get the chance to really devote myself fully to it again, because it really is such an amazing outlet. And, uh, and it's such an amazing outlet because of all the people out there like you all listening to it. So for this last episode, we'll have my chat with a guest and then a short montage of some of the best advice from the show. Our conversation today is with a very successful serial entrepreneur, Reagan Moya Jones, who came over to the U.S. from Australia for what was supposed to be a couple year stint with her boyfriend at the time. A whole lot has changed from there. And without giving away too much, I'm going to take you right now into that conversation. Okay, Reagan Moya Jones, thank you so much for joining us on the When to Jump podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So we have many jumps to cover, and I know we won't get to all of them, but I would love to start out with this question. Did you see your life working out the way that it has up until this point? Not even remotely. I, uh, I often sort of stop and pinch myself and go, how the hell did I get here? both on a, a business and career level and the fact that I have four children, which at school I was the most least likely to get married and have kids. And here I am with four of them and a, a baby product business. So joke's on me, I guess. That's in- incredible. And so where does one begin with your story? Do you remember, I mean, we'll flash backwards a bit and we'll get to present time soon enough, but... Where did the idea to go into business or entrepreneurship come from? Was that something that you had always set out to do? You know, I didn't I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur until well into Aiden and Ana even. I what I do remember is for as long as I can remember always wanting to work for myself, always wanting to have my own thing that I was the master of my own destiny and I you know, could could set everything up the way that I wanted it to be. So looking back at that, I guess in hindsight, I always had a very entrepreneurial spirit about me. But at the time, that's not what I was defining it as, if that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. Sometimes it's hard to connect the dots, you know, as you're going through it until afterwards. Right. 
And where did you grow up? Can we talk about that? It doesn't sound like you've got an American accent. Oh, no, this is a Brooklyn accent. It's just this little <laughs> area. No, I, uh, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. I was uh, raised on the northern beaches, beautiful place in the world. And I moved to New York City when I was 29. So so what, what made you leave at 29 for Brooklyn? Actually, it was my then boyfriend, uh, now husband, who was, he's an electronic engineer and he was given an opportunity to come over and set up the New York office for a telecommunications company that he was working with at the time. And he sort of said to me, hey, I've got this opportunity what do you think? Would you be up for a couple of years in New York? And I had actually been to New York a few years prior for a holiday and I, New York City was definitely, I I was addicted to it. The minute I got on the Triborough Bridge, the first time I came here, it was in my blood. So it didn't take much convincing to get me to, to pack up and move here when Marcos had the opportunity from a work perspective. The big joke is we were only supposed to be here for two years for his work assignment and 21 years later and four American daughters, we're, we're well and truly entrenched here now. So what, what was your first gig when you got to New York City and you're living in Brooklyn, you've got your boyfriend at the time's job, that's a, supposedly a two-year assignment, what happens next? Well, actually, even before I came, just to give everybody a, a premise of what was going on, I was working at uh, Pfizer at the time in sales and I was also doing my MBA of an evening and so and Marcos and I we literally used to have dates at midnight in an all-night cafe because you know, I was just so crazy busy with with uni and and work and so when I moved to New York, I didn't have a visa. We weren't married, so I didn't have a work visa. And I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll slow down for a couple of years. And my husband's Chilean, so I thought I'll learn Spanish and I'll do some volunteer work. And when I got here, that actually didn't happen. What happened was I laid my ass on the couch and that's where I stayed for sort of six months. I fell into a, I went from all to nothing and it was it was a very interesting time in my life where I learned that I being idle was not good for me in any way because I really did fall into a pretty big hole when I first got here and Marcos sort of said to me look I don't care what you do but you need to you need to go do something he said this isn't good this isn't healthy sort of thing so the only place I could work was the Australian consulate. So I, my first job in New York was doing data entry at the Australian consulate because I didn't need a visa to work there. So that was that was the that was the get me out of the house gig. <laughs> and uh, and then after that, I met an Aussie girl who had dated my husband's best friend back in Australia, and got introduced to her and she ended up getting me a job at the International Institute of Research, which was a conference company. And I was selling conferences, sponsorship on conferences there uh, for about a year. That was, and and I took that job because they sponsored my visa and that's how I, 
I became legal to work in the US. It sounds like it was a close call. It was, really. And and interestingly enough, that girl was my the other founding partner of Aiden and Danae. So it was all very intertwined, really. That's incredible. And so was the entrepreneurial, you know, I would say, um, bug or itch, was it starting to build at that point or was it, it, was it still, you know, under the surface? It was under the surface. I, you know, I, I was not, it was not a driving force for me to, you know, I have to come up with a business idea and start my own business. It was just sort of something that would, you know, I would think about from time to time. So it wasn't like, you know, I, I got that job and, and I was trying to come up with a business idea. It was just every now and then, you know, I'd think, oh, wouldn't it be great to own a restaurant and be able to run it myself and, you know, little things like that. But no, there was never any real driving force behind that. So you don't launch into the entrepreneurial kind of pursuit and venture at that point. What was your outlook on on kind of how you thought about work and life? It sounds like there were some constraints that you were unique to your situation, like staying in a job to get, you know, the, the paperwork down and have the visa so you didn't have to go back to Australia. But uh, were other things at play? How did you think about that? Well, at IIR, I, I wasn't happy. You know, I was I was being paid, you know, a really small salary and... I wasn't really passionate about the job or interested in the job. It really was just a means to an end in the sense that it, you know, I became legal through IIR with my papers. I then moved to, I met somebody at IIR who got a job at The Economist uh, in their conference division. And I ultimately, she introduced me to the, the people at The Economist and that's where I ultimately ended up. And I did enjoy working at The Economist. I met some amazing people and worked in different areas within The Economist group over, it was about 10 years I was there. So at The Economist, I, you know, I wasn't unhappy with what I did and I was pretty successful there. I was just very frustrated because I felt I could do more and Unfortunately, none of my managers seemed to think that I was capable of going to the next level. So I I became very frustrated in that respect because I knew that career-wise I wasn't going anywhere at The Economist. Sure. And and what was the action from there? How did you weigh the decision to make, make make a change versus, you know, take kind of the the hand you're dealt and, and, and submit to it? Well, that, that's an interesting question because I don't know why I didn't go, well, F you, I'm, I'm going to go and work down here with people that, you know, do think I'm capable of more. But quite honestly, though, Mike, it probably would have been just more of the same. I don't come across as a very serious person. I, I, I joke a lot. I... I'm very candid, I say what I think, and in corporate situations, that's not always helpful, you know? So so rather than making the move, I, I stayed, I was successful there, I was making good money, I could, for all intents and purposes, do the job in my sleep, you know, it was pretty easy for me, so... 
you know, fast forward to when I did have the idea for Aiden and A, the fact that I had been sort of looked past for any opportunity to grow and, and move up in the economist group. I'm glad of that now because had I had a career progression, I might not have then taken the leap into being an entrepreneur and starting Aiden and A. Yeah, sometimes it's more of a push than a jump, but that, you know, gets the job done exactly. as well. Exactly, exactly. And so can we can we go into that moment, which I think so many folks want to hone in on, and, and you've shared before on different shows, but maybe the, the kind of the most vulnerable aspects of getting this idea, how did it, how did it develop? What was your initial reaction? What was the internal dialogue as you, as you brainstormed on whether or not to do something about it? Because I think that those earliest signs of maybe taking a jump, this earliest initial micro movements of doing something different, acting on a passion or a need or an idea, those are oftentimes the hardest signals to get right, to, to know when to act on it. So can you walk us through that? Yeah, again, great question. So what was different when I had the idea for Aiden and Anae beyond all of the other ideas I'd had for years and years prior was that this was the first one that when I sort of really sat down and and sort of did the back of the envelope sort of plan on it I could see made sense and had the the ability to really scale if I got it right so from the very beginning I sort of went you know what because you know for for your listeners just a a quick context around Aiden and Anae. It, it's a baby blanket, a product that was, it existed in Australia, albeit in a very utilitarian way in that they were white and, you know, but every, every parent used these blankets when they had babies. And I just thought, I went looking for those blankets when I had my first daughter, Anae, and I couldn't find them anywhere. And I just thought, how do Americans have babies without this stuff? And so I just saw a huge opportunity because every Aussie couldn't have it wrong, right? So I knew that if I just introduced the product to the American you know, market that I was really supremely confident that they would respond to the product the, the same way that the Aussies did and that was really the the motivating factor to sort of go, yep, this, this, this idea really does have legs. So but to be clear, I did not, you know, go, throw caution to the wind and go, oh, right, I'm quitting the day job now and I'm going to, you know, go off and put everything into to Aiden and Anae and starting this business. I actually dipped my foot in the pool, so to speak, rather than dived right in because I stayed working at my full-time job at The Economist and I was building Aiden and Anae of a night after I got home and after I put my, my daughters to bed. So I sort of, I straddled the corporate and the entrepreneurial world for, well, I had the idea in 2004 and it took till 2006 to actually develop the product because, you know, self-taught. I had never worked with Chinese manufacturers before. So that took some time. 
we uh, got our first product in 2006 and it wasn't until the spring of 2009 that I actually quit my day job and started to work on Aiden and A full time and the impetus was for that was that we hit a million dollars in revenue whilst I was still working my full-time job. And I had read statistics that only 2% of all women-owned businesses ever get to a million dollars in revenue. So I had set myself that goal personally that as soon as I get to a million dollars in revenue, then I'll allow myself to to go full into Aiden and Ana and see what I could do when I was focused on that 100%. That's incredible. Congratulations on every part of that journey. It's so easy to talk about it in broad strokes and skip to the good stuff, but that that's un, that's just amazing. I mean, does it feel surreal to say that all out loud? Um, it well, it was my reality, so it doesn't feel surreal to me. It's there are definitely times now because people all say to me, "How the hell did you have a full-time job?" three kids at the time and then eventually four and build a business to a million dollars in revenue and I look back at at that time and I do wonder how the hell I stayed upright through it but I think it was just I was so passionate and so driven and believed in what I was doing so much that that's just what drove me so I just I pushed through the exhaustion and the you know and just made it happen. I just, uh, you know, not making it happen just wasn't an option for me. It's a powerful story on what you can accomplish. Like you said, was it 2% of female-owned businesses go on to make a million dollars a year in revenue? And you were able to do that whilst raising a family of was four, four and yes. having a full-time job as well? Yep. So, you know, statistically, I knew I'd accomplish something that a lot of other people aren't able to accomplish. So that sort of gave me the confidence to go, all right, well, I'm pretty sure I'm on to something here, you know. And, you know, I, I joke with people and say I chose, you know, uh, sleep deprivation over financial hardship you know i could have i could have gone on quitting the day job but my my salary meant something to our family so i didn't want to do that to the family and i also didn't want to put unnecessary pressure on aiden and anae where i was desperate to try and get money out of it so it was it worked you know it worked on both sides of the fence and I do remember specifically having a moment where I sort of was second guessing, what am I doing? You know, have I bitten off more than I can chew here? And what if I do this and then fail? And I thought to myself, you know what, I would rather try and fail than not try at all. And as soon as I allowed myself the freedom to fail, because statistically, I knew there was more chance I was going to fail than succeed. I that freed me and I just, you know, I was all in then and just, you know, never looked back. Wow, that's such a powerful way to think of failure and one we've talked about before. The fear of failure is less significant. Obviously, there still is a emotional toll that it takes and to some degree financial and obviously time and effort. But because you could jump while still, you know, technically employed, the, going back to the financial piece, the jump and its potential failure and downside risks are, are much less 
devastating in clear terms, it seems like. Oh, 100%. You know, and that's the thing. You know, everyone thinks of entrepreneurs as these, like, you know, throw caution to the wind, you know, huge risk takers. You know, it's, it's, it's not true. That's not how you have to be to be successful as an entrepreneur. I'm living proof of that. You know, I did it very cautiously and, um, and absolutely that fear of failure was lessened by the fact that, you know, I still, I still had my day job to fall back on. But even after that, you know, when I left The Economist Group and, and went into Aiden and A full time, you know, I just kept reminding myself the worst thing that can happen here is it can all go pear-shaped and fail. And so what do I do? I just go back and get another sales job somewhere, you know, like doesn't mean that I can't do what I'd done for 20 years prior again if right. it didn't work. So it's very freeing when you realise that really that's your worst case scenario. You just go back to do what you used to do. It's yeah. um, nice to have a nice to have a fallback, you know, which anybody who's been working and then decides to go out on their own and do their own thing, everybody has the same fallback. What surprises you most looking back at that time and and the jump itself when you left to go in full time? Probably just the the tenacity in which I took it on. You know, I definitely had some of my closest friends and family saying to me, what are you doing? Just, you know, we want you back, like give this a miss. And because any entrepreneur who's built a business from scratch knows that it's all consuming on a level you can't really understand unless you're in it, you know. So, my family and my friends, you know, started to say to me, what are you doing? Just give it up, Rags, like this is not good. And I just thought, no, I've come this far and if I if I do quit now, it'll be all for naught, you know, what I've gone through. So I, as tough as it was, I powered through. So I think the, that the, my tenacity to, to keep going despite all the times I was knocked down and there were many, um, that's probably what surprises me the most. Yeah, it is hard when it's your friends and people who know you best to, and they, it was, you know, who it are was, saying that, right? Of course, and it was from a point, pers- you know, it, it was because they loved me and cared about me and they could see the toll that building this business was taking on me. You know, like my hair was falling out at points of, in the journey, you know, so it, it was very real, the stress and the pressure that I put myself under to be successful. Um, but, you know, clearly all very worth it now that I'm out the other end of it. And I want to fast forward a bit. You end up reaching multiple countries, 25 million products sold. Mm-hmm. It becomes a slamming success, a $100 million business. And yet that's not where the story ends for you. Can you describe where you go from there and what that was like and perhaps maybe your bigger your bigger or biggest jump yet? Sure. So um, I, I brought on investors in uh, 2013 that 
effectively bought the company from me and then I bought back in, you know, in a major way. I, I still today remain the single largest individual shareholder in the company outside of the private equity firm, obviously, who holds the controlling interest. And um, without going into gory details, it, it didn't work out. We did not see eye to eye. And ultimately, they fired me from, from the company last March, which was absolutely brutal. I, I'm not going to lie. I fell into a pretty big hole having lived and breathed that business for 12 years to have somebody tell you, you know, off you go, we'll take it from here was, was tough. But um, 100% out the other end of that now. And so I've, uh, you know, that that could be where the story ends and be sad, but it's not. And I've, uh, I've started a new business now and I'm back building something from scratch again and loving every minute of it. And, you know, I'm just as determined to, to make St. Luna a a huge success, just like Aidan and A was. And what I have now is the the benefit of hindsight and and 12 years of experience. So I can certainly cut some corners and not make the same mistakes I made with Aidan and A. Incredible. And can you talk a little bit about this new venture and, and uh, you know, I guess why after such a, you know, slamming success, and you mentioned a little bit of, of the why, but why you're you're going back into the trenches, like as you said, to such a unique and and amazing and incredible, but totally overwhelming experience as an as an entrepreneur taking the journey again. Well, it's just you know I wasn't ready to retire for want of a better word. You know I I I actually missed the that that sort of scrappy startup stage of the business even when I was still the CEO and running Aiden and A. I I know personally I much prefer the creation and the building than, you know, when you are at you know, fifty, sixty, eighty, a hundred million dollars and running that. It's a very, very different gig, obviously. So my passion is in the creation and the building stage where everybody is it's a small team and everybody's in it together and you know you're you're really building something from the ground up as a team and that's you know that's what I like to get out of bed for that 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 brings me much more joy than you know running a a multi-million dollar business I know that's not for everybody but it's certainly you know my path and I just wasn't, I just wasn't done, you know, and I'm not going to lie. There is a part of me because I was, you know, I spent a lot of my career being told by other people that I couldn't do it. And, you know, ultimately I proved them wrong building Aiden and A and accomplishing what I did with Aiden and A. So having been knocked down again by the investors, you know, there's, the, the feisty Aussie girl in me is like, well, fuck you. I'm just going to show you that you made the mistake and watch me go over here and do it all over again with a whole other business. So there is a little bit of that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's what makes you you, I guess. And, and the success to date is in probably attributed in no small part to some of that grit and the hustle, uh, which we know is so important in any jump. So 
I guess wrapping up, the last question I'd love to ask you, Reagan, and thank you for taking so much time with us, is what would you tell others who are thinking about their own jump? You know, we do have a lot of potential first-time jumpers. We have a lot of women who listen to the show with kids and a family who are thinking of something but not sure if they can pull the trigger on it. What would you tell those folks? Well, I would say that similar to you, the, the there's a quote by John Burroughs, the essayist, who um, uh, it was the first quote I put on the conference room wall at our offices in Brooklyn, and it's leap and the net will appear. And I really believe that. I think that what I would tell anybody who is contemplating making the jump, taking their own leap, is just do it. Because the the hardest part, I think, I can't tell you how many people I talk to, Mike, that tell me they, they've had this idea and they've been sitting on it for... And, and my response to them is, well, why haven't you done anything about it? Well, I don't really know how to start and what to do. I was like, neither did I. I had no clue. I literally Googled my way through the first three or four years of my business. You know, I was teaching myself as I went along, so much so that I remember being on the phone with a buyer at a major retailer and they were interested in the product and they said to me, can you send over a line sheet? We'd definitely like to take a look. And I said, absolutely. And I hung up the phone and had to Google line sheet because I had no idea what one was, you know. <laughs> so my my advice to anybody who who has the spark of an idea but isn't sure about how to go is you just do it. You, you really can work it out as you go along. And, and that's very much how I built Aiden in an A. Even when I was asked to write the book, I was, I said, well, I can't write a business book. Like there's no way I'm going to lecture people on here are the 10 steps to go from zero to 100 million in 10 years, you know. I And it's because I literally just got up every day and put one foot in front of the other and use common sense literally most of the time not not experience to work out the best way forward and so anybody who's who's got the idea and is on the fence about doing it because they don't believe that they have all the knowledge to actually get it right don't think that way because if someone like me can do it then I honestly believe if you want it badly enough, anybody can. Incredible. Well, I appreciate you sharing such a vulnerable story with us, Reagan, and I hope everyone goes and supports your next jump. Where can they find you? What's the best way to keep in touch and to, to follow your your next journey and the jump that's coming up and already started? There's uh, there's my website, which is just reaganmoyerjones.com. So that's... Uh, the book and my contact details and everything you can find there. And then St. Lunar Spirits, which is actually a, a premium moonshine. Which, so we joke and say, I've gone from babies to booze, which is for anyone who is a parent knows that that's actually a very natural progression. And St. Lunar is the the new company. So people can go to stlunarspirits.com and check out what we're doing over there as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Congratulations on all the success to date and what's coming up. And an incredible story from, a, from what was supposed to be just a two-year trip up to, uh, to North America many years ago and an unbelievable journey. And, and I appreciate you sharing it with us, Reagan. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. 
What a great conversation with Reagan. Again, you can find more about her and her book at ReaganMoyaJones.com. Before we go on our show pause, I wanted to bring you the greatest hits advice from some of our most popular episodes. During our break, if you need some jump inspiration, I definitely recommend going back and listening to these titans of jumping. We'll start with Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook COO, about the advice she would give her younger self. Two things. The first is don't plan it all out. If I had planned my career from my younger self to here, I wouldn't be here. Because when I graduated from college, there was no internet and Mark Zuckerberg was in elementary school. (laughs) Do not try to make plans because then you miss the big opportunities. Have dreams. I tell people long-run dream and short-term plan. And then, you know, the second piece of advice is don't be so nervous. Julie Finn, a.k.a. the Working Mother's Mentor, gives her perspective on the value of your mindset. For me, a lot of it was about the what if, what if, what if, and it, it all tended to be negative. So I think a lot of work around what if the positive, what about the positive scenarios? What about if it works? What happens if you don't make a change? What does your life look like? So really focusing on the outcome and working on the, the confidence and the courage, I think you have to do that alongside the actual kind of saving and financial planning. Here's Jared Sebesta, weatherman turned financial planner about accepting the uncertainty of a jump and how that uncertainty can be a valuable tool. There's no way you make a jump and know what's coming. And that's what I tell people who are kind of on the verge of, of making the jump or maybe want to do a major switch in their careers where they want to iron out all the, all the details. And I tell them, like, that's just not going to happen. And in fact, I think there's some, there's some healthiness in not really maybe knowing every single detail to come. You know what I'm saying? Because really everything that happened after I left my television career, none of it came to fruition. And had I known... Uh, maybe I wouldn't have jumped when I did. You know what I mean? So there's got to be this healthy balance of fear and preparation. You know what I'm saying? Here's Gretchen Rubin, author of The Four Tendencies and host of the podcast Happier, talking about risking things even when people tell you not to. People from the deepest love um, will discourage us from taking risks because they don't want to see us risk failure. They don't want us to see... Um, us get our feelings hurt. They don't want to see us get rejected. They don't want us to like be be in a situation of uncertainty or like you know uh, instability. And so they try to get us to do something safe. This is the safe path. Stay on the safe path. Then you'll be safe. But the fact is, there is no safety um, because you know whole professions have crumbled before our eyes uh, in the last ten years. So there is no safety. Here's Seth Godin author and former tech exec about dealing with failure. When you look at the things that occur to you and you feel cornered or you feel unjustly accused or you feel like you're out of resources or that people have let you down or that you got an unlucky break, it's up to us to decide how to process that. And in my experience, it's not that The universe is sending you a message that you're never going to amount to anything. But in fact, it's precisely the opposite, which is the universe is saying lots of people run into speed bumps. Most of them quit. The people who don't quit are the ones who get through to the other side. Ola Kunle Oladehin, the doctor turned dance instructor, talks about why following what you love is always the right choice. Just keeping things you love like in your life, I think is really key. 
you'll never know what opportunity comes up. And I never had an intention of what I'm going to do with dance from the time I started. I had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. And I think that's what we realized. We People don't always find the connection to, hey, I like this thing. How do I make this thing what I do? That isn't always as clear. But if you keep that thing you love in your life, then the opportunities will will make themselves appear if you're open to them. Ariana Huffington, founder of the Huffington Post, was one of our first guests. Here's some words of wisdom from her. As a friend told me, you know, take a deep breath and jump. You know, it's, you can't figure it all out in advance. You just have to follow your heart at some point and take that jump. Yeah. And you know when you know <laughs> that it was the right thing because the, given how agonizing the decision was, the morning after the decision, it seemed so inevitable. And I'll leave you with Brenda Berkman, New York City's first woman firefighter, on her best advice. You get this time, and what you do with it is, uh, is meaningful or not. And so are you going to choose to do something meaningful, or are you going to just sort of, like, mark time? All right. That's it for the show today. After 80 episodes, this will be our last episode for a while. I hope you liked the montage of advice, and you can always go back and listen to old episodes. What they say can affect and impact you and be helpful at any point of your jump and at any point in your own life. So it certainly is a bit bittersweet to be pausing the show, but as I mentioned at the beginning, this time will be best spent to help me focus on my current jump in the business school world, being involved with a bunch of different things and projects here at Stanford. I will be in Rwanda this summer. If anyone's going to be around, you can contact us through the website and we can share with you what kind of projects I'll be working on there. And then I'll be back in the Bay Area in the fall. In the meantime, I wanted to make a huge, huge point to thank all of you, all of the listeners of this show, for everything you've done to support me since we started. Truly. This is why we do the show. Thank you for the questions, for your emails, your voice memos, and engaging with the community on social media, which, by the way, is not going anywhere. So, as I said before, you can always stay in touch with us at when to jump on social media, whentojump.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, which a lot of you have done, so we can keep you posted. And we'll be sure to send you updates on all the great things that our jumpers are doing. Truly, just to underscore that, I I don't think I can put into words how meaningful it is to have created, or not even created, but helped put the foundation in place for all of you listeners to come together and really join me in this journey. Um, When this podcast started, it was several months before the book came out, and so much has changed since then. And one thing that has stayed the same is a dedication to pursuing and supporting other people's jumps that we've tried to do again and again on this podcast. So for playing any role in that, I want to thank you. I absolutely embrace and appreciate and and never can take for granted just how special this community is. Uh, So many of you have shared your most vulnerable stories and questions and, and ideas and concerns and hopes and dreams with me and with this community, and I know that that has helped, in turn, somebody else make their own jump. So thank you. Please stay with us. Follow us online. 
follow the newsletter. Stay tuned because I promise you my goal is to come back in some shape and form and another um, to the podcast. And I hope you'll be back with me when we get there. But for now, I'm Mike Lewis, and this is When to Jump. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.